What a privilege to sing your praises this morning. Thank you for blessing us with musicians that have hearts set on you and want to lead your people in worshiping you. Thanks for the people back in the sound booth and, and making it possible for even my voice right now to be easily heard, uh, not just in this congregation, but people potentially watching online. So many giftings, Lord, you've given us. May we use them unto your glory. Lord, we want to hear from you today, so give us ears to hear. Lord, let us uh, pant for your word, just like the deer pants for water. We want to be fast after whatever you ask us to do, whatever you direct us to do, whatever you tell us to do. We want to be fast about your word, God, being led by your spirit to walk in righteous ways before you. Father, forgive us this past week where we failed, where we've fallen short. Uh, we thank you for the blood of Jesus, which cleanses our sins. God, thanks for all the kids you've blessed our church with, even the ones that are crying now. God, let your hand, <laughs> let your hand of blessing be upon them. But that shows that there's life in this church, Lord. So we thank you for it. We have no issues with it whatsoever, God. Uh, their joys, their cries of, of maybe frustration, Lord. God, let us cry out unto you. Uh, with our frustrations, with our hurts, with our sufferings, Lord, let us be real before you, God, unashamed. Thank you for your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, one of the things that we've been doing is going through the book of Obadiah and looking at some different aspects of it. Today, we're going to look at the geography of Obadiah just a little bit because that's going to actually help us understand uh, a device that Obadiah is using in trying to communicate the sin that the Edomites had and why they are being judged for it. And that's going to lead us into talking about a particular sin um, today. When we look at the geography and even the economy of Edom, if you can picture the Dead Sea in your mind on a map, your Bible, some of them might even have a little map in the back. Uh, but if you picture the Dead Sea, if you go maybe to the middle of the Dead Sea, and then looking at the map, you went east or to the right, you'd have Moab right there. But if you went to the bottom of the Dead Sea and kept going south, you'd hit Edom. That would be the area of Edom. And so um, that was a very kind of rocky area uh, with a huge plateau to it. This plateau went about 4,000 feet uh, above the ground. And if you think about it, um, this plateau would allow travel to be rather easy because, as you know, plateaus, well, they plateau. <laughs> They're nice and flat. Uh, so the King's Highway, going right along the edge there, would make travel super easy, which is why the Israelites, once they came out of Egypt, that's why they wanted to travel through that land. On top of that plateau, it's nice and easy. It, it's smooth uh, and, and a nice little flow that we'd have if you wanted to travel. Of course, as we've seen, the Edomites uh, said, no, you can't travel this way. But that's why they wanted to go through that area. It would have been a really easy path for them to take. One of the things that we're going to hit on is in verses 3 and 4 today. So turn to Obadiah if you aren't there and look at verses 3 and 4. It says in verse 3, The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? 
Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down. And what we're going to hit on today is the sin of pride. Now, most people either say, I'm not prideful, or they'll admit like to a very small level of pride. In fact, if I asked if anyone here was prideful, you'd probably say no. (laughs) Well, this sermon's for you. (laughs) Let me grab this back here. I want to let you know today that pride knocks on the door of everyone's heart. Every day. And guess what? We open that door far too often. So when Obadiah addresses the sin of Edom, he uses the geography to make the point about their prideful sin. Look at verse 3. He says, you who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling. So he's referencing where they lived. They literally lived in this rocky area in the clefts and the caves. This made it an easy area to defend. Kind of hard to attack people if they're 50, 100, 200 feet up in the air living in clefts and living in caves. So he references this like their position was a haughty position, so to speak. Not just spiritually, but actually physically. They were high up. Easily defendable. But what does God promise? That he's going to bring them down because of their pride. Again, look at the beginning of verse 3. Or excuse me, the end. Who will bring me down to the ground? This is the Edomites saying, hey, how can you take us down? Our position is quite easily defensible. Who will conquer me? We're not conquerable. That's pride. The three main cities of Edom, which uh, a couple of them are mentioned in this book, uh, Selah, Timon, and Basra, and then a little bit smaller city called Petra, they were all located in a nearly impenetrable high rock formations reached only by narrow, vulnerable gorges. Further, Selah, which was the capital, its location was surrounded by steep cliffs, and it was only approachable via this well-defended southeast slope. So you'd have great confidence if you're an Edomite defending your position against any attack by a foreign army. A 19th century expedition ended up going to this area, and they noted the following. When we had come fairly inside the gorge, we found it at times so narrow that two of us could not walk abreast its perpendicular sides vary in height from 400 to 700 feet. And he goes on to talk about how how the clefts and the gorges are are overlapping at times so that you could literally look up and all you see is rock for hundreds of yards. So very, very, very easily defensible for the Edomites in their position. Well, what the Lord is saying through Obadiah is, okay, you think you're defensible, but I'm going to take those defenses down. You take pride in the position that you have, and I am going to knock it down. One theologian described it like this, talking about the king's highway. The road, of course, keeps to the more level ridgeland, 
But from time to time it approaches the rim, and the traveler peers dizzily down into a bizarre world of dark, gigantic cliffs and deep, terrifying gorges. Here is a region altogether apart, forbidding and inaccessible. The home still of the leopard and such other animals as man in his ferocity has not yet succeeded in destroying. Again, right along that edge is where Moses and the Israelites wanted to travel and they were turned down. So they're taking pride in their position, but God, he's all-powerful, right? And he can reach them, can punish them, even in their high location. So what is God's response? He responds in verse 4. After they're saying, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Brothers and sisters, the hand of the Lord, it goes wherever it pleases. Right? And Jonah learned this. True? What did he think? Oh, I'll escape. I'll get away, right? And what did the Lord say? Nope. You're going to have a whale of a time going to Nineveh. <laughs> so we have an example of pride here. The Edomites are prideful because they believe their physical position is impenetrable. Now, here's the thing. Obadiah uses a variety of different poetical forms, and one of them is actually a pun. We see it going on here. There's like a play of words. When it says back in verse 3, you who live in the clefts of the rock, well, that's the Hebrew word selah, which is also their capital city. So he's making a little bit of a, a, a play on words or a pun there. It'd be like saying something about St. Louis using the word arch. Like St. Louis is our arch rivals. Get it? Yeah. So we see this prophecy is, is leveled against Edom. Well, they have hope and confidence. Well, where did they place their hope and confidence? In their physical location. Do you think people in America are doing that? And what's the danger in doing so? We're leaving out the Lord. We're taking more uh, hope and confidence in a physical position, position that, that we have before the Lord as his children. So a confidence in position. Even if we think of positions that the Lord gives us in various aspects of our life, our position can give us a false sense of security. And I, I was thinking about this even during worship, actually. There's all sorts of positions that we have. We have a position at work, a position at school, position at church, position on a worship team, position on the youth group, position on a leadership team, position on a sports team. Those positions can easily puff us up. Okay, we can get prideful because we have a certain position. When I, after I'd been saved a couple years, I did an internship uh, for a parachurch organization called Teens for Christ. Um, and uh, the leader of that organization, Tim Ward, uh, he assured whatever pride I might have had in getting this uh, position as an intern was quickly knocked down because one of my duties as an intern was cleaning toilets. All right? A lot more often than I thought I needed to. <laughs> But he taught me early on that service is service. And if we're going to serve, we serve in any capacity and whatever capacity the Lord 
calls us to. And he wanted to show me early on that uh, there wasn't all the glitter and, and glamour to ministry that some people kind of prop it up to be. Ministry is challenging and hard work. Not just maybe vocational ministry like myself, but any ministry, right? Not always a lot of glitter and glamour to it. It's hard work, it's tough work. Brothers and sisters, what do you take security in? Well, I'm going to suggest and submit to you that our security should come from God himself. The one who can ascend the heights and bring you down wherever you are, the one that can reach whatever position you are in, listen, that's the one to look to for security. Not your position, not your job. No, we need to humble ourselves. And if the Lord can reach the Edomites in their lofty fortified position, guess what? He can reach you and deal with your pride. So this word, pride, in verse 3, the pride of your heart, it's not just pride in the normal sense. It's that, but it's much more. Because this particular word that Obadiah uses here is not just normal pride or even excessive pride that we can sometimes, sometimes we might have reasons to be prideful. Not that we should be, but you score a 36 on your ACT, you basically ace that thing. Like, at least you have a reason, right? Like, okay, you're pretty smart. You just aced that thing. But this word here, when it talks about pride, it's not based on a genuine superiority. No, this word here suggests that the claims are totally unjustified. And, and really, when you think about pride, a lot of times, it's unjustified. There's not a reason for us to be prideful in whatever thing we think we are, because we always overestimate ourselves in whatever area we judge ourselves to be. Or we do the, the kind of like false humility thing, which is like the brother of pride, and we totally abase ourselves, which is actually prideful. We'll look at that in the weeks to come. But one author said, by using this word, Obadiah expresses the irony that in spite of its mountainous and lofty abode, this bold assumption is totally unwarranted and unfounded. Because Edom refuses to recognize the limits set by the Lord Yahweh, the presumption of its heart has deceived Edom. One of the greatest painters of the ancient world, Apelles, Guess how many paintings we have of his today? None. None survived. But he was considered one of the greatest painters of the ancient world, and his reputation was well established for his hard work, his obsession with detail, and his exquisite art. And he had a couple phrases that survived to this day. One of them was, nulla dies sine linea, or no day without its line. He did not feel that any day was complete until he had done something to basically refine his craft. One thing that he would do is when he finished his paintings, he'd put them out on a balcony, and he would hide somewhere, and he would wait for the passers-by to look at, at the painting, not because he wanted to hear them talk about how amazing it was. I, he probably already knew that. But he, but he wanted to hear whatever critiques they might have of the painting so that he could become a better artist. So one day... He, he had this painting out on the balcony, and this shoemaker walks by. And the shoemaker notices on one of the subjects that there's one, uh, too few loops on, on the sandal of the subject. So he, he's like talking out loud, oh it's, oh, it's missing a loop. 
So Apelles hears this, right? And so after the guy walks by, he grabs a painting and he, you know, carefully puts a loop on it. Well, the next day, the same shoemaker is walking by again, and he notices that Apelles had put another loop on it, right? So he gets kind of excited. So then his, his gaze goes from the shoe, and he, it starts going up the leg, and he starts, the shoemaker starts commenting on the leg and kind of critiquing how, how the leg was drawn, where Apelles bursts out of his hiding spot, and he says, Suter ne ultra crepidum, which is translated shoemaker. Don't go beyond the shoe. <laughs> <laughs> which that word has become anglicized. We actually have a, a word today called an ultra-crepidarian, which is someone who goes beyond the shoe, meaning one who is presumptuous and offers advice or opinions beyond his sphere of knowledge. It is someone who has no special knowledge of a subject, but who expresses an opinion about it. What was Apelli's concern? that the shoemaker should stick with his area of expertise, right? And not presume to be an expert on everything. You know how many arguments, and in my early years I probably started most of them, but how many arguments I've had or listened to now of people debating different theological things of which they know very little about. If we're going to debate something or act like we know something about it, brothers and sisters, we need to make sure that we've done the homework to express an opinion on it. Otherwise, we're just blowing smoke and we're acting more out of pride than anything else. So listen, a little success in one area, the point of the parable, does not give you right to speak to any other as if you are an expert. Look at Proverbs chapter 18. Proverbs 18, verse 2. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his own opinion. Pride likes to act like it knows a lot more. When it bubbles out of us, it act, likes to act like we know a lot more than we really do. And I understand, I'm in the position more often than I'd like to be, of being in a conversation and really not know what's being discussed. Well, that's okay. Like, we're not God, right? Anyone here omniscient? No. But the Lord is. And he's here, I get it. <clears throat> God is omniscient, we are not. So we are going to be constantly learning things. That's what should be one of the great things about living in God's world, that we get to learn and grow and discover things. I'm excited about being able to learn more and more and more about the field of expertise that God calls me to. Each one of us, he calls to a field of expertise. And, and all of you are sharp in different areas of extra expertise. And if I have questions about different things, I go ask those people that I know those particular questions. Some people I, I bother because I ask them so much. But that's all right. Like, they've got an expertise and I don't have it. Now, I call people that act like they know more than they should, I mean, they're like, art, I've used the term before, article theologians. I guess I could use the term uh, ultra-crepidarian now. Um, but, like, they read an article on the Internet, 
and then they think they're an expert in that area, right? Like you read an article on, on raising children and not like you're like the expert in raising children or whatever this, the category might be. Listen, you look foolish to those who really understand that subject. You look foolish to them. So show a little humility. Some people spend an hour researching something on the internet about some area of law, and they think they know more than attorneys who have spent two to three years going to law school. I mean, think about it. So if you don't know a subject, like just admit it. There's like a pride of knowledge. Maybe that is like the subtitle of my sermon today, the, the pride of knowledge. The pride of knowledge. If you don't know about a subject, just admit it. No one expects you to know it all. And when you act like you know it all, guess what? You look prideful and foolish and stuck up. And no one wants to listen to that. That means we've got to humble ourselves in the area of knowledge. We can keep learning and growing, and I plan to, and you should too, but realize every area is not your area of expertise. Realize when it's not your area. Listen. This is a very freeing thing to do. When you can admit that and realize you're not an expert, to admit you simply don't know instead of trying to act like you do, admitting you don't know, it doesn't mean you're stupid. It actually means you're kind of wise. You're not trying to, to blow smoke. It means you lack knowledge in an area. That's not the definition of stupidity. And there's nothing wrong with not knowing is no one knows it all. Okay, God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. We are not. So we need to repent. Some of us need to repent of the pride of knowledge. We think we know. We think we know, and we think we know, and we don't know. Look at Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs 8, verse 13 says, The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. So we see things right here that God hates. Pride, arrogance, and perverted speech. God comes greatly against pride. So much so, guess what? He opposes the proud. That's what the word says. It says it in Proverbs a few chapters earlier. It says it in James. It says it in 1 Peter. God opposes the proud. He opposes the proud. So whatever pride, if we're walking around as prideful people, guess what? God's going to oppose us. Listen, in order for us to come to know Christ, guess what it takes? Probably the hugest dose of humility we've ever had before because we have to humble ourselves in what? Admit we can't do it. Admit we need help. Admit we, what we want to try to do, we can't do. And we need someone to, else to come along and help us out. Who here wants to be opposed by God? I don't. Do you? No. God opposes the proud. A lot of times when something is repeated in Scripture, it's kind of like, okay, uh, in case you missed it in Proverbs, I'm going to say it in James. And in case you missed it in James, I'm going to say it in First Peter. Why? Because God wants to make sure that message is pounded into us crystal clear. God opposes the proud. If you're walking around prideful and puffed up, guess what? The Lord's hand will be against you. 
He wants us to walk with humility. Over and over, think of Colossians. How are we supposed to clothe ourselves? With humility. Even the, the parable I mentioned uh, at Reformation Wednesday about the guy coming in with, with the wedding, without the wedding garment, right? And he gets kicked out. Like there's this idea of you have to be clothed with something. That's the scriptures use this idea of clothing when it talks about putting on proper characteristics that the scriptures want us to have. So we're clothing ourselves with humility. We're clothed, we're clothed with what? The righteousness of Christ. Brothers and sisters, in order for us to get into heaven, guess what? We have to have the righteousness of Christ. On our own, we don't have that. We do not have it. And we can try and try and try, and every time we're letting pride, you know, well up inside us and reek out of our pores, guess what? We're not walking in humility, and we are saying to the Lord that I can do it on my own. And that's not of the Lord. It's not of God. Clothing ourselves with the righteousness of Christ, why do we have to be clothed with his righteousness? Because guess what? We have none. We have none at all. There is none what? Righteous. There is none righteous. None righteous. No, not one. I'm just, I'm just quoting from the scriptures, Romans 3.10, right? Which is quoting from the Old Testament. There is none righteous, no, not one. And then what happens? Christ comes along, and what does he do for us? He lives the righteous life, the perfect life, full of righteousness. Not a drop or hint of any type of sin whatsoever lives the sinless life. And then he takes your sin upon him. Your sin. Your sin of pride. Your sin of the pride of knowledge. He's taken that. And what does he do? He takes care of it. He receives the punishment of God for your sin. And then what does he do? Because just because your sins are forgiven, guess what? In order to be in God's presence, you have to have righteousness. We're not righteous on our own. Even if you wiped away sins, all our sins, that's just like morally neutral. Guess what? We have to have righteousness. And that only comes from Jesus Christ himself. That's what he gives us. When we trust in him for what he's done for us, when we repent, when we humble ourselves and come before him, guess what? Wipes away the sins. That's like part one. And part two is what? He gives us his righteousness. Because we have the righteousness of Christ, all sins are forgiven. And we are now made right with God. And we can be in his presence, not because we have a righteousness of our own. We never will. But we have someone else's righteousness given to us. We're clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Brothers and sisters, that means that whatever sins we're dealing with, one, we can have the hope that God has already taken care of those. Jesus dealt with them on the cross. But guess what? We can have confidence that we can walk in obedience in whatever areas we're currently falling short. We're falling short. You know, if I had y'all take out a piece of paper and, and list areas you're falling short, and some of you might need a book, but if we took out some paper and started listing areas where you're falling short, like, it'd be a long list for all of us. We probably all need books, all right? Some of y'all multi-volumes, okay? <clears throat> I get it. I'd probably have like a 20-volume set. But the point is, Christ comes and takes care of that. But, but believers, we're supposed to be doing something about that. We, we don't just keep adding to those, and just, we don't just have like a, an endless supply of ink. We just get to write as many sins as we want, and God's going to be okay with that. Like you, can't, you snub the death of Christ when you just openly sin and do whatever you want. You, can't, you, you make a mockery, and we all have. 
me included, but you make a mockery of the cross of Christ when you just decide to sin however you want and you think so little of sin. Brothers and sisters, our sin cost our Savior his very life. Our sin, the only way God could deal with it was to sacrifice his own son. And, and, and the wrath of God was poured out on his son. You should have received the wrath. I should have received the wrath. And your sins that you're doing, they deserve wrath. That's how serious sin is. It deserves the wrath of God. It will be poured out on unbelievers. If you're not a believer here, if you haven't trusted in Christ, and you die in that, in that state, guess what? You will receive the full wrath of God. It will be an awful, awful day and days, and days, and days, to no end. But I stand before you today to submit unto you that if you trust Christ, the wrath of God can be abated. If you humble yourself, you, have to, you, you truly have to get rid of pride in your life. You have to knock it away, and you have to come before Jesus humbly and bend the knee. Everyone's going to bend the knee. Everyone is what Philippians says. Some are going to do it while they're still living on this earth, but one day it says, every knee shall bow. Man, do it today. Do it today. Humble yourself. Whatever pride's been reeking out of your pores, I exhort you to repent of it and get right with Jesus today. Whatever sins that are in darkness that haven't been revealed yet, I encourage you today to repent of those sins. It does you no good to walk in darkness. We are called the children of the light so let the light of christ shine into that area let it be exposed so he can deal with it and then guess what walk in righteousness be clothed with the righteousness of christ walk in the fruit of the spirit right I, they were doing a teaching in our nursery uh last week or the week before the fruit of the spirit is written back there they're teaching teaching your kids that are in the nursery the fruit of the spirit well guess what we, we need to teach it to them, but guess what? we got to exhibit it, right? I mean, it does no good to teach about the fruit of the Spirit and then, and then live like the weeds of the devil, all right? So love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, all of those we should be displaying. And Lord, forgive us where we're not. But if we want our kids to display it, brothers and sisters, we better have it ourselves in abundance. If we want our kids to have self-control, we want them to know how much time to do event X, event Y, thing Z over here, guess what? We better exhibit the self-control in our own lives. We're the example. We are, we are the teaching word to them. So if we're saying, hey, I'm a believer and I'm walking with Jesus and son, daughter, like, like I, I believe this thing, well, they better see it. They better see it. They need to see it. And that doesn't mean you don't trip up, but here's what it means. When you trip up and they see it, you go and humble yourself and talk to them about it and confess your sin. When you sin against your kids, and all of us have multiple times, they need to know that that's not right. They need to know that you're willing to humble yourself. And that can be a hard thing to do for a parent to humble themselves before their kids. But guess what? When the Bible says when you wrong someone, go make it right, it doesn't say except for your kids, right? No, we're supposed to walk 
in forgiveness. We're supposed to walk with the humility of mind that when we sin against someone, we go make it right. All of that to say that God is calling a people for his own pleasure. And we are called, Hebrews, we are called to holiness. That's what we're called to. We're called to righteousness, to walk in it. Anything that is contrary to that is not of the Lord, and he will oppose it. He will oppose it. He will bring discipline upon us, thankfully not punishment, but discipline upon, he disciplines those he loves. He will discipline us. So I encourage you in this specific area, with pride and the pride of knowledge, if you've kind of had an arrogant attitude, thinking you know it all, whatever area it might be, you need to bring that before the Lord today, repent of it, and turn away from it. The prophet Micah said it rightly. I want you to see it. Micah chapter 6. Just a couple books after Obadiah. Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. That is the attitude in which we are walking our walk with Christ. Humbly with our God. That leaves no room for pride. We've got to toss it aside we got to smash it, we got to get rid of it, and we got to root it out of our lives completely, okay, day by day, because that sin of pride, it is knocking at our door. Knocking at our door. And we gotta, we got to stop answering that. And we got to say no. we got to say yes to Christ. Listen, Christ comes to give us freedom. It's not a freedom to sin. Too many people wrongfully use Christ like that. And if you're doing that, you need to ask yourself where you're really at in your relationship with the Lord. Because Paul says, <clears throat> are we supposed to, does that mean we can just sin more? Christ can't, oh great, all our sins are forgiven, let's just have a sin fest. No. He says, may it never be. That is an abuse of the grace. That shows a misunderstanding of the grace of God. If you think you just got a license to sin wherever, however, whenever you want. It says you don't understand grace. There's a good chance you might not be saved. No, God wants us trusting in him and having a freedom to what? A freedom from bondage to sin and freedom to serving him in righteousness. Okay, we're going to be a slave of something. Slave to sin or slave to Christ. That's what 1 Corinthians says. We're going to be a slave. You can be a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. If we're a slave to righteousness, that means God, God bought us, right? 1 Corinthians 6, he bought us. You were bought with a price. There's a price. What was the price? The precious blood of Jesus. That's an expensive price. Name me something that's more expensive than that. There's not. So Jesus himself pours out his blood for you to redeem you, and he buys you, and he owns you. Guess what? 
Who's your master? Jesus, right? But think about that. Is he some cruel, unrighteous, mean, ruthless taskmaster? Not at all. He is very kind and gracious. Come to me, all you who are weary, right? Take your yoke upon me. Why? Because he's gracious and loving. He's kind. He, he, he treats us in mercy and grace and love. Does that not mean that he doesn't have a tough word for us at times? No. Quite the opposite. He's more than willing to give us tough words because we need them, because he loves us. But he is a very gracious master. What he requires of us is all of us, right? The entirety of who we are, to submit unto him and say, Lord, here I am. I will be the vessel to be used however you want. Cleanse me from my sin, Jesus. Clothe me with your righteousness. You do that, you're part of the kingdom of heaven. You do that, you're a child of God. It is yours and yours and yours and yours and yours, and each one of ours, it's available. If you haven't trusted in Christ today, I encourage you to do so. It is a beautiful thing. Let's pray. Lord, I do pray for anyone here who might not know you. That you'd show them that, that they are a slave to one thing or another and a slave to sin, but that you will set them free. You will set them free from the bondage of sin. And you will be a good God to them. You will be gracious and kind, pure and righteous, ever-loving. And Lord, I pray for the believers here Lord, whatever pride is in them, may they repent of it now. May they get right with you. May they cast it off. May they humble themselves in your presence. You've given them your Holy Spirit, which is the strength they need to walk in obedience before you. They have the Holy Spirit living inside them. They are empowered to walk in obedience, each one of us. May they walk in obedience by your strength in this area for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.